Canto 19 of The Purgatory is a very difficult one for Dante. It's come after these three brilliant cantos on love, where Virgil has explained so much. But there was a bit of a warning in the midst of that for Dante, because Virgil says, you won't really understand what I'm talking about, or at least you'll only understand it in your head, not in your very being, until you encounter Beatrice. And there's a kind of foretaste of what that encounter is going to be like now in Canto 19. It starts with Dante the poet reflecting the time of day, and he does it in one of his beautiful ways, but it's also eerie and a little disturbing this time. Remember that it's late into the night. He says that the moon had chilled the landscape and also so had Saturn. Um, Saturn is the god, the keeper of time. Moon, The moon of course only reflects the sun's light, it doesn't shine with the direct brightness of the sun and so there's a sense of warning and a foreboding here. Um, be careful when you haven't got the sun's light when you only catch its echoes and reflections. It can be a confusing, difficult time. And then that's emphasised because Dante the Poet also refers to the geomancers who look for good fortune, who look for the light, but do so by looking at the earth. And again, it makes you wonder, this uh, seeking the, the fortune, fortune-telling, divining, God's ways. We've seen it in the Inferno that it's a risky business. Um, you know, Dante does it too in the Divine Comedy. And yet, when Dante the poet here refers to the geomancers, those who look to the earth to divine these ways, you feel that they're looking in the wrong direction. Not least because the whole direction of man purgatory is the search to find a way up. So with this picture painted in a way of our state as well, only seeing reflected light, often looking to this world for direction, for the way forward, Dante falls into his second dream on Mount Purgatory, on his second night there. And it's told much more succinctly this time, um, but it's in a way disturbing um, in a more visceral, guttural kind of way um, this time. There's no sweeping up to heavens and the fire of heaven. Um, this time what happens is that he sees a horribly deformed female form who's stuttering, who's distorted, who has yellow skin. And he stares at her, and as he stares at her, she changes. She becomes more beautiful. She takes on the colour of love, as Dante puts it. And as she's restored by Dante's gaze, she starts to sing a song, but it's a disturbing song. She sings, I am, I am the siren, and refers to how the sirens had seduced Ulysses and almost caused him to throw himself into the waves had he not tied himself to the mast. But even as she's singing, I can satisfy you so well, 
that you'll never want to depart. A holy lady appears by the side of Dante, and the siren cries out, O Virgil, O Virgil, who is this? This is still all taking place within the dream. And Virgil steps forward and rips the clothes off the siren and exposes her body, her paunch, her belly. And a stink comes off of her and the stink wakes Dante up. Dante is deeply disturbed by the dream. I think it's a second initiatory dream. If you remember before, the dream of the lustful abduction, the violence of love, had given him an image of his inner state of mind in relation to love, the state that needed to be purged if he was going to appreciate that actually love can lift him higher, as it happened when Lucia, Lucy, appeared. I think here he's given another dream that gives an intimation of his inner state of mind. He's much more active in this dream. You'll notice that it's his gaze that causes the woman to transform. He has to own his dream. It comes from within his psyche. He has to take responsibility for it. But that's very hard at this stage. It is devastating to realise that these kind of images arise from within your own mind. Not least when that happens so soon after, in Dante's case, these three beautiful cantos on love and all that it promises and all that it brings to fruition. But this is Mount Purgatory and it's very much getting to the heart of things in order that that love can be properly enjoyed, that this passage is about. For now, we have Virgil comforting Dante, but saying, I called you three times. Look, the sun is now high, it's morning the next day, and we must find the gateway to the new terrace. Um, just notice, I think, how Virgil is being quite Christ-like here. Um, you know, he calls Dante three times, much like Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane had called the disciples three times. He's going to show Dante the passageway, um, much as Jesus was the way, showed himself as the way. Um, and he's associated with the sun, um, unlike um, the moon and the Saturn um, associations with which the canto had begun. So they move on, and Dante says that he was bent over a bit like a bridge, half a bridge. It reminds me a bit of the bridges over the Bolgias in Malabolge, if you remember them. It's almost like there's a part of Dante that's been taken down to hell through his dream. He's feeling trapped, I think, by the dream. That's the significance of that. And it's so profound that he hardly notices the angel that greets them at the end of this terrace. Um, remember, angels appear and another angel appears. He says it did speak graciously um, and it showed them the way to the steps up. It showed them the direction up. The way of the sun. Um, they, they, Dante half sees its stateliness, he feels its wings, um, he doesn't mention explicitly that it wipes another pea from his brow, but surely it did. Um, even when angels are nearby, you might say, when we're caught in this burden of realising what we carry in our own psyches, what we carry in our dreams, 
um, the side of us that would pull us down to earth. Um, it's hard to see the angels that are nearby. It's hard to see the way. Um, luckily for Dante, he's got Virgil. And as they climb on and move past the angel towards the next terrace, um, Virgil says to Dante, you know, what's wrong? What fills you with so much dread? Um, and they talk and Virgil explains that this is indeed a kind of initiation. It's a foretaste of what he must face as they traverse the next three terraces, the final three terraces, and will confront, be confronted with avarice, with gluttony and with lust. And you get the sense that the dream is anticipating that general journey, these next sections of the purgatory, but it's also quite particular to Dante. It's come from Dante's psyche. And you have the sense that lust is going to be the most difficult one for him. Um, this is what he has seen in a figure in the dream, which Virgil calls, calls the great sorceress. Um, you know, Mabry, as it were, the great sorceress appears in different ways to different people according to what she can enchant in the individual's psyche. And it seems that the imagery of lust, which you might say Dante has made in his own mind's eye, is what is going to confront him the most. Dante and Virgil have also heard another beatitude being rehearsed as they passed the angel. And I think this is key. And um, the beatitude this time is blessed are those who mourn. And I think this refers to what Dante must do in response to his initiation. He must learn to mourn. He must learn to let go of those parts of himself that sadden him. Um, he must grieve for these states which are inside him. Um, but that softer approach to them is what actually helps them to melt into the past, to loosen their hold on him so that he can move into the future. Um, that's an important side of mourning too. And what's quite striking is that this news that what's inside him is going to be dealt with on the terraces they're about to walk around and ascend to, plus the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who embark on this process of letting go, really lifts Dante. I think there's a profound psychological insight here that what actually is encouraging is being told that, that which disturbs you is going to be looked at, is going to be examined, and is going to be purged thoroughly and properly. You know, Virgil doesn't say, oh, don't worry, we all have dreams, we all have wild fantasies inside, inside of us. You know, what use would that have been? But to confront what's inside of us and to be told that we will be helped to do that, to be able to take responsibility, that is what lifts Dante, he says. In fact, he says he's lifted like the falcon who flies to the heavens, the falcon who flies towards the sun, who enjoys the sun's light. Again, in marked contrast to how the canto has begun. By this stage, they're also on to the fifth terrace. And what they see are souls who are motionlessly lying face down on the ground with their eyes and mouths and nose in the dust. And they're saying the psalm, my soul cleaveth to the dust of the ground. 
we learn pretty quickly that these are the souls of the avaricious and also the profligate. And the point about them is that in life they had fixed their faces to worldly goods, not always bad things in themselves, but so much so that they had forgotten even how to look towards heavenly things. Um, and so now they're here quite high up Mount Purgatory, but nonetheless having to learn afresh what it cost them when they became so fixed on the good things of this world that they lost sight of the heavens. And their mourning too, in fact, um, it's said that their tears flow into the dirt. So they're learning to let go of those things that they loved and wanted and in a way worked, gave their lives for on earth in order that they can work and learn and give themselves to the things which are of heaven. Virgil asks one of the souls the way and the soul tells them they must just keep their right side to the drop off Mount Purgatory and they'll find their way through this terrace. And Dante gets really keen to talk to one of the souls. Um, we've seen this before. He turns to Virgil. Virgil um, realises how keen Dante is to do so and Virgil's happy about that. Um, I think because Virgil is realising that Dante wants to really look at what these souls are suffering in order to know how to mourn his own state, um, the, the ways in which he has become entangled with worldly goods. And they talk to one um, who turns out to be a pope. Um, he's Adrian V, and it's the first saved pope that we've met. Um, which is interesting. Um, and in fact, what's even more interesting is it turns out that this Pope, whilst he was elected Pope, died before he was enthroned on St Peter's chair, and so was never officially Pope. And what Adrian says is that it wasn't until he was elected Pope that he realised how much people become, can become trapped in worldly affairs, in worldly goods, in worldly splendours, and worldly glories, as it were, when he was at the pinnacle of all those things as Pope, he realised how he himself and so many people around him, not least in the church, were preoccupied with all that. And he says it was in that moment that he realised that he actually loved the things of heaven, um, and in a way he was kind of lucky to die um, fairly speedily after that, and so be propelled to this fairly high level of purgatory to complete the work that had begun when he was elected Pope and realised just how caught up in worldly things he and the church were. You get a sense of what might have been Adrian's particular way of longing for worldly things um, because he's um, quite loquacious. He speaks a lot. Um, he's uh, the kind of character that doesn't say things succinctly, but will use three lines um, when one would do. And you just wonder whether um, in life, you know, he loved words, he loved expression, he loved um, maybe the rituals associated with greeting and communication. Um, you might say the kind of church courtliness. Um, and, you know, it's interesting if that's so, because it's not that those things are necessarily bad in themselves, 
but they can become the whole world. They can dominate someone's imagination and mind. Um, and so whilst they pretend to be speaking of higher glories, actually become ends in themselves. And I think this is what Adrian has to work through here now. It's significant too in the synchronicities um, of this place that Dante meets Adrian, because of course Dante um, is very good with words as well. Um, he's a poet, and so he has to learn something of the risks of associated uh, the risks associated with being good with words, how that can trap you in itself. Um, so they have this exchange. Um, Dante um, bows down um, to a saved pope, um, as he might do, um, but that in itself is a earthly gesture would keep him uh, attached to earthly ways. And the Pope Adrian says, look, here, being a Pope doesn't matter at all. Um, all those um, titles and um, ordinations and um, earthly glories dissolve here on purgatory. So, you know, don't bow to me, please. Um, Adrian says it also prevents the tears from flowing from him that uh, would ripen his new heart and help lift him to heaven. You get the sense that Dante bowing to Adrian is actually quite a temptation for Adrian. Um, he could have got very used to that life. So he asked Dante not to bow for his own sake as well as for Dante's sake. Um, and Dante too must stop bowing because, again, that's about taking on responsibility, mourning his own state, not, as it were, kowtowing to the priests who promised to take it away for you. And the canto ends with Adrian asking Dante to remember his niece, who's still alive on earth, Elagia. And I think that that happens partly because Dante has said to Adrian, you know, if I can remember anyone on earth, then please let me know. Um, this kind of exchange, this generosity and between the souls which we've seen developing on Mount Purgatory. Um, but also I think it is this particular person who's named because Dante, in the period of exile at the end of his life, it turns out stays with the husband of Elegia and his family. And so she stands in this moment for someone who had worldly goods, who had the means to offer hospitality, and yet was generous with them, opened them up to Dante. And so having looked at how worldly goods, even good things, can nonetheless become a kind of self-contained world and so block you off from that which they even pretend to transmit. Having looked at that, Dante can see how Allegia and her family offered him their worldly goods generously and freely, um, giving them away, um, opening them up, you might say, in a very different gesture and movement from um, the avaricious tendency to hold on to things. And with that, the canto ends, Adrian making a last comment that Allegia is all that he has left in the world, indicating that he's given up everything else that he had, even to the point of becoming Pope. So is fully engaged in the task of mourning his own attachments. But that is going to be Dante's great task now,